What's up guys? This is Ryan with the Kingsman Report. It is November 26, 2019 on a Tuesday. Um, tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about, you've seen in your um, thumbnail, I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit about MK Ultra and some of the stuff that uh, it had to do with Oklahoma that I didn't even know about. Um, I have stuff on Trump donating his quarterly check to the opioid crisis. A woman attacked by wild hogs. Um, I have a whole bunch of stuff to go over. Facebook uh, facial recognition software, MK Ultra, and then a huge heist that happened over in Germany that makes the Italian job look minuscule compared to it. Over a billion dollar euros worth of merchandise stolen from a museum. So you guys stay tuned. You can chat if you want to, or you can call. Uh, the number is... Sorry, hold on. One four zero eight six three eight zero nine six eight, and then enter the meeting ID. It's five three four two three three four seven five eight, and I will take your phone calls here. I monitor the phone calls, um, so stay tuned, and I will be right back with some of this crazy news.
What's up, guys? All right. Um, I've got a bit of stuff I'm going to listen or talk to you guys about. Talk with you guys about tonight. Um, sorry, I, I took off yesterday. I wasn't feeling that great and hadn't been getting much sleep, so I kind of uh, just took a break for a minute. But uh, so first off, I mean, hopefully the stream will stay up if if the wind doesn't blow our house down. Um, we're under like a severe wind warning. It's been windy all day here in Oklahoma. And uh, now it's just, it's picked up. The trees are hitting the windows outside and it sounds nuts out there like a tornado. Um, but here in Oklahoma, we just kind of go out and watch the tornadoes come in. So um, I guess since I'm talking about Oklahoma, I'm going to go ahead and share this article. Um, now, I didn't write this article, obviously. And, and I also did a little bit of different stuff. Um, So what I did was I took the articles, um, I cut them out to where you can see them a lot better. There's no ads playing on the side. Um, so now you can just focus on this and it's a lighter color. So it's not like neon colors in your screen. Um, but like I said, you guys could call in if you want. The number is 1408-638-0900. And then you guys enter the meeting ID. It's five five three four two three three four seven five eight. And you guys can enter the meeting ID, and then you can call in if you you know you have anything you want to say about these articles. If you have an article you want to share, then you can email me articles also, and you can email those to Kingsman Report two thousand nineteen at gmail.com. And then you can call in the number scrolling at the bottom of the screen. So as you can see in your little box up there, um, crime surges in Oklahoma. So I don't, I mean, people in Oklahoma have been paying attention to this, but not necessarily a lot of people probably around the world. When they think of Oklahoma, they think of horses and carriage. Well, um, it's, it's not like that by the way, but, uh, I mean, we're a lot more laid back here than most. But this article talks about, we had, uh, I think it was last month, beginning of this month, over 400 inmates released from our local prison system as part of, of, as part of the new um, um, incarceration reform. And um, I guess crime in certain areas of our state, especially Oklahoma City, have gone through the roof. To the point they've had to create special task force in order to control the crime that's going on. But the article says crime surges in Oklahoma as Republicans continue to open prison doors. So it says, who needs George Soros when you have Republicans in Oklahoma enacting this number one agenda item, de-incarceration? It says, in case you think the stupidity of downgrading crimes and increasing prison release and the inevitable crime wave that follows is limited to San Francisco, think again. As Oklahoma is a state where no Democratic presidential can candidate has carried a single county since 2000. 
But when it comes to crime, Oklahoma Republicans might as well be San Francisco Democrats. As Oklahoma Republicans adopt the drug and theft culture of San Francisco. As by now, most Americans are familiar with California's Prop 47 and how the downgrading of drug and theft crimes led to a rise in drugs and thefts and theft and has saddled San Francisco with a culture of homelessness and shoplifting. You're glad we live in a nice area, far away from San Francisco values. It's what many Americans living in the heartland think upon seeing the endless negative headlines on San Francisco. The problem is that thanks to a... Um, Excuse me. Griffith's Republican Party. Those San Francisco values have permeated every state in the Union, particularly Oklahoma. The Koch-funded conservative organizations have convinced Oklahoma Republicans to embark on one-sided mission of prison release rather than stemming uh, the tide of growing crime. They have made them feel guilty about having the highest incarceration rate in the state. Um, we actually have the highest incarceration rate in the in the world, uh, in the country. Oklahoma has the highest. Um, it's pretty bad here. They used to lock you up for pretty much anything. Because yet rather than identifying case by case individuals for release, the state politician successfully passed State Question 780 which downgraded drug and theft crimes across the board. They followed up by la they followed they followed with it last year by making those changes retroactive. This led to the single largest prison release in one day in our nation's history when 462 felons walked out the door on November the 4th. This marks an important milestone of Oklahoma's wanting to focus the state's efforts on helping those with nonviolent offenses achieve better outcomes in life said a beaming Governor Kevin Stitt upon their release. The historic communication of in Sorry, the historic commutation of individuals in Oklahoma prisons is only possible because our state agencies, elected officials, and partnering organizations put aside politics and work together to move the needle. Yet there's one thing elitist politicians overlook in criminal justice discussion. Crime and its impact on the rest of society. Everything for them is zero-sum game of sympathy for the convicts. What they don't realize is that fundamentally, we are not locking up people for minor crimes, and even those locked up for so-called minor crimes are usually not incarcerated for that long. And it's usually because they had a longer rap sheet of violent crimes and violated their parole with drugs or driving offenses. Moreover, as we've seen in San Francisco, when you decriminalize even low-level offenses, it leads to chaos for property owners, businesses, and public order. Indeed, other people exist in the world who have rights and a stake in public policy aside from criminals. Governor Stitt certainly moved the needle, all right, towards San Francisco. Drugs, theft, and homelessness brought to you by Jailbreak. Last week, the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office announced a new task force to combat the growing burglary trend and placed the blame squarely on the new laws. Since the threshold of certain crimes 
changed some felonies to misdemeanors back in 2017, we have seen a steady increase of thefts in Oklahoma County, wrote the Sheriff's Office Department in a Facebook post on November the 13th. According to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, larceny crimes increased in Oklahoma County by far the most populous and urban county in the state by more than 7% from 2017 to 2018. The statewide problems with retail theft continue to rise. Mark Myers, a spokesman for the Sheriff's Office, observed that, quote, it's basically just a free-for-all right now through portions of Oklahoma County and that they are finding inmates bragging about how they communicate with networks of thieves. Quote, they understand law and even take calculators with them to make sure they aren't stealing or they are stealing less than $1,000, said Myers. Then, of course, homelessness comes along with the breakdown of public order and decriminalization of crimes. Jason Hicks, the president of the Oklahoma District Attorneys Association, warned that homeless population is, quote, exploding in some cities precisely because of the recent leniencies are enticing them to return. The uh, quote, the comments that they're getting back is, we're moving to Oklahoma because we know that there's not going to be any, uh, we're not gonna get into any trouble and we can do our drugs and do, do it all day long and there's no consequences for that issue. Hicks said at a recent State House Judiciary Committee hearing, Drugs, theft, homelessness. This is exactly what, what is happening in San Francisco. Good job, Republicans. The big lie of the over-incarceration and its dangerous consequences. Violent crime dropped almost every year since 1994, but it began to rise in 2015, has increased every year since then. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, violent crimes statewide is up now 12.3%, since the low point of 2014. Aggravated assaults rose by 17.7% over the same period of time. In 2016, the murder rate rose 35% to levels not seen on a consistent basis since the 1990s. And while most property crimes still declined, at least until the latest round of jailbreak, vehicle theft has increased by 24%. The numbers of Tulsa are even starker. The increased crime from 2014 to 2018 is as follows. Murder is up 30%, rape 22%, aggravated assault 36%, larceny 10%, motor vehicle theft 38%. The simple truth, the simple truth is that most people are in prison for a very good reason and many others should be in prison uh, who should be in prison escape justice. If you let them back on the streets, crime will go up. Most people aren't in state prisons for drugs anyways. According to a report by Rafael Manguel of the Manhattan Institute, 60% of state prisoners are serving time for murder, rape, assault, robbery, and burglary. Only a small percentage of state prisoners serve time for drugs, and almost all of them are in drug trafficking, are repeat offenders, and serve less than two years but even the few are sentenced for drug crimes. Often they have either pled, pled down for more serious crimes or go on to commit more violent crimes if they remain on the streets. The average murder suspect in Baltimore in 2017, according to the city police data, had nine prior arrests and 70% 70 had prior arrests for drugs. 
According to a survey of 400,000 released state prisoners, more than 75% of those were released after serving time for drug charges were subsequently rearrested for non-drug crime. This explains why the obsession with reducing the prison population in recent years has led to an increase of violent crime. But drugs and theft are not a very pleasant for communities either. Now they have now that they've been downgraded, there is more of it. According to Jason Hicks, many criminals are barely serving time as it is. Quote, a five-year sentence or even up to 10-year sentence. Those folks are serving a very small amount of the time in DOC on nonviolent crime, said Hicks in a recent hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. He was also quoted by saying, in fact, you're going to serve roughly 90 days on a 10-year or less nonviolent crime. And if you haven't done anything else, you're getting in an ankle bracelet and getting sent back home. One would think that, after reversing a two-decade consistent decline in crime following a weakening of sentencing, lawmakers would at least uh, at, would at least let the data stew for a few years before pushing more jailbreak. Yet a bipartisan group of Oklahoma politicians are now pushing for a law bar barring prosecutors from even factoring in previous offenses when pushing for sentencing enhancements on subsequent crimes. So much for the trope about uh, first-time offenders and second chances. Reality has hit them that most people in prison serving meaningful time are really bad dudes, which is why they are now clamoring to release or never convict them, too. Because it's frankly the only way to achieve their goal of de-incarceration. Public safety be damned. In the Sooner State, the public would be better off if the politicians realize their mistakes sooner rather than later, after crime returns to pre-millennium levels. Now, I'm going to say this about the pre-sentencing that they do in the um, that they do in the court system. So, I've had running with the law whenever I was younger. I've done stupid stuff. Um, a, a, you know, pretty much everyone has. If you haven't, then you've gotten away with it and just never been caught. But I'm going to say this. You can do a crime. You can go to jail. You can do the time. You can pay the fines. And you can get out and do well for a decade. And then whenever you're gone to go be sentenced on, you know, another, whether it be anything, they will take those crimes that you committed a decade ago and they will try to give you pre-sentencing based upon a crime that you've already paid the fines on, that you've already went to jail for, and you've probably already done your probation. They will take 10-year-old 10, 10 crimes to enhance the current crime, which I think is ridiculous. I think if... Now, I do, I do think there should be a statute created, say, if a person has committed crimes within the past two years, three years, whatever it may be. But to go back a decade for something stupid as, you know, a public intox charge, right? And then try to worsen someone's current situation by enhancing the crime by throwing that garbage on it, I think that's ridiculous. I think we failed in that position. Um, where I'm at uh, in nor Northeast Oklahoma, 
Uh, I don't think that there has been a rise of crime in this area, but we are in the I-44 corridor and drug trafficking trade runs up and down that corridor. So I think that they can change and, and mix these statutes up and change a little bit of it, but we're also still in the first stages. Whoever wrote this is probably not from Oklahoma. Um, and the majority of the people that they did release on that day were from a woman's, a woman's prison. Now, if they get with the people outside of jail that are, you know, doing crazy ass stuff, uh, then they, you know, they probably get back into that life. But, you know, I think certain people deserve a chance. I think you can create a statute to say, well, they got to do this, this, and this in order to not get their crimes worse and, and all the other stuff. Just my opinion. I'm not a lawmaker or anything like that. But that's what's going on in our state. Um, it's just, it's it's crazy, you know, for, for one to see that, you know, we're the first, uh, we're one of the first states to do a mass um, release of prisoners in our system. But like the article said, we have like the highest incarceration rate, not only in the state or the country, but in the world. Oklahoma locks up people for some of the stupidest crap, or they used to. It used to be a misdemeanor here. Um, and then if you, it used to be a misdemeanor here for a certain possession of marijuana. Second offense was a felony you could get prison time for. Now we've legalized cannabis here or me medicinal cannabis. So you could get in trouble for that stuff, um, back in the day. It's just, it's just gotten, I, so much stuff has changed in the state so fast. I, I just don't think anyone can keep up with it, but if you were even back then caught, you know, with a, a quarter ounce, um, and then it was a misdemeanor, and then second offense, then you, you could be given a felony. Um, it was, you know, prison time for amount over, you know, I think an ounce, two ounces, something like that. Um, I knew guys that had got arrested for saying, uh, say, a quarter of marijuana, and then they, um, you know, paid their fines, got out, and all that stuff. And then were pulled over again. The police officer knew about their priors. They went back, searched the vehicle for probable cause because they were a, a prior offender. Found a marijuana seed in the floorboard of the vehicle and arrested them for it because it contained THC. I've seen some of the stupidest crap go on in this state as far as law goes. Now, to see a change in it, I, I definitely think people deserve a second chance. But we're just going to see how this goes. I mean, it's trial and error. Um, statistically, the more majority of people who are offenders are repeat offenders. They get out of this or they go into the system, they get out and they, you know, turn right back around and they're locked up again. So, you know, I'm going to watch this, but I, it, you know, I think people do deserve a second chance. We'll just see how this goes. So, you know, speaking of, you know, California and, and what goes on, I, I talk a lot about California and what goes on there as well. This article is um, California's Gavin Newsom sues Trump administration for trying to get water to farms. These guys' beef is so stupid. So first, you know, the fires that are going on in California, that have happened in California, that have destroyed people's homes, taken lives, all that stuff going on in California. Then you got Trump saying that he's going to withdraw aid from Cal federal aid from California to help with the disasters from the fires. And now you got this. 
Gavin Newsom wants to sue the Trump administration for trying to get water to farms. These guys are just stupid. Like, I, I don't understand it. I mean, I understand you hate each other, but this is just, it's getting ridiculous. So it says California's governor Gavin Newsom is suing the Trump administration over plans to ship more water to Central Valley farms. Governor Gavin Newsom and members of his uh, administration announced that they were preparing a lawsuit against the federal government to prevent California's rivers and wildlife from being cheated out of vital supplies, the San Francisco Chronicle reported. As the left-wing media is claiming Trump is trying to, quote, prevent California rivers and wildlife from being cheated out of vital supplies. In reality, the Trump administration announced new rules for water sources to lessen restrictions on giving farms access to water supplies. The administration changes were cheered by farmers in San Joaquin Valley who have blamed long-standing environmental regulations for tying up water to the state's $54 billion agricultural economy, the Chronicle continued. However, environmental groups aren't happy with Trump's new rules that assist farmers. They claim additional water release would dry up the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta, as well as the rivers that feed it. The statewide ecosystem is responsible for helping to support fish, birds, bears, killer whales, and other plants and animals. The Trump administration is standing by its decision. Brenda Berman, commissioner of the of the Bureau of Reclamation released a statement explaining, quote, From the beginning, we've been focused on cooperative solutions with the state of California to being reliable water supplies to farms, families, communities, and the environment. Today's announcement by Governor Newsom is disappointing in his preference to have judges dictate these important projects instead of career professionals at the federal and state levels who have developed a plan based on the best science and significant input from the public. I think Mr. Newsom needs to stop beefing with Trump over dumb stuff and focus on the people who are going through the crap they're going through with the rolling blackouts that continue to wreak havoc on people in California that have their medication spoiling, that have you know, ventilators, all the stuff that they need to survive. But, you know, you're allowing um, this corporation over there initially where, and and I said this and and it was kind of, you know, just kind of speculating. It was speculation that California would take over the PG&E. And then not two days after I said that, they came out with an article where they wanted to uh, give it back to the people and that means, you know, the mayors of every county that it's involved in taking it over. And then um, there's, you know, part of your Agenda 2030, Agenda 21, whatever you want to call it, where the government takes over the commodities, the resources, uh, the distribution of electricity, um, food, whatever it is, just giving the government more control. I've also posted a uh, petition, one of the videos that you guys can sign if you want to go look for it for the removal of Gavin Newsom. A lot of people in California are actually leaving. There's numerous videos you can look up on YouTube that have to do with um, a max exodus out of California. And there is um, a lot of videos on there of, uh, you know, people just fed up with the crap that's going on there. 
I feel for the people in California. I pray for them there. Um, you know, I'm going to continue to pray for them there. Um, even though, you know, a lot of people in California see different than what we see here and, and, in, in Oklahoma, we're a more conservative state. Um, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we all should be, we all should treat each other as human beings and love each other like we love ourselves. So I think, uh, personally, I think, um, the governor there is a moron, but each their own. He's, he's ridiculous. And again, all the articles I'm reading, I post the links in the descriptions below and you guys can go and check those out. And again, if you're listening to this on podcast, um, you can always tune into the Kingsman Report live on Facebook. That gives people an opportunity to call in. And if they have articles they want to share with me or if they have an opinion on one of the articles that I share, uh, then we can have an open discussion about it respectfully. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not really into the whole political uh, stuff, even though, you know, people around me are more conservative. Um, I'm more of the old definition of what a liberal is. If what you do doesn't necessarily bother me, then um, do whatever. Uh, you know, I have, um, I live according to, you know, biblical principles and, and morals and things like that nature, but um, I don't really get into politics. I don't, I don't feel for it, so... Uh, all these links are in the description. You can call in the number scrolling across the bottom of the screen, 1408-638-0968, and there's a chat running. So, this next article, this is this is uh, crazy because from, from what the article says, this is available in any state, um, which I wish people more people would view this some of these videos I do because I, I don't know if people are paying attention to this stuff. This actually came out yesterday. Um, it says this company will pay you $3,000 a month to smoke weed. New York based online magazine, American marijuana is looking for someone to review weed products and will pay you thousands of dollars a month to do so. The job calls for a reviewer to make unboxing videos and explainer videos, excuse me, about the products perform and differ from competitors. They will then write honest reviews and opinions in a form of a blog. Says this job is 100% for real, and it is an important job that includes more than just getting paid to smoke weed. American Marijuana stated in a job posting, "Quote: If you think if you think you got the guts to smoke weed every day, and then it says in parentheses, play Snoop Dogg song, smoke weed every day." Um, and get paid doing it, you might just be the guy we need. As the magazine claims that every month, they will ship the reviewer a box with different brands and variants of cannabis products, including weed strains, vapes, edibles, and CBD products. They will also be paid up to $36,000 a year, depending on their experience. I know dudes on Periscope, this streams on Periscope, by the way. It streams on DLive Twitch, Periscope's on my personal page, um, and YouTube. But... I know dudes on uh, Periscope. I mean, that's all they do on the videos, just smoke bong rips. They could just, they could be smoking those bong rips and, you know, making 36K a year, depending on their experience. It's crazy that they're paying people to do this type of stuff. But 
<laughs> whatever. It says applicants must be 18 or older and live in a state with legal medical cannabis. So that means even if you're in the state of Oklahoma, since we do have legal medical cannabis, you could actually participate in this job or apply for this job. And yes, they do ask for a resume. It says they also need applicants to send a resume, a headshot, social links, and intro video, and at least six street names, slang terms, or nicknames for marijuana, so we know you're taking this seriously. This may not be for everybody, but I bet you you're interested in this type of work, America Marijuana said. I mean, come on, who doesn't want to get paid by doing what you love? You can smoke cannabis and get paid 3k a month. That's more than what most people make working a 9 to 5 job, especially in this state. That's another thing. People say, well, we don't want to live in Oklahoma because, you know, pay is low at certain jobs. The cost of living in this state is, is, is low. So your money goes a lot further than it does in, say, New York. I lived in New York. Way too damn expensive. Um... I mean, the sites are cool, but Oklahoma's where it's at. As far as, you know, settling down, retiring, all that good stuff. Where I'm at, we got really good companies also. Uh, hold on. This article says Google wants to finish your sentences that's a problem. This also came out yesterday. I'm reading yesterday's news because, like I said at the beginning of this, I kind of just took a break yesterday and chilled out. Uh, wasn't feeling it. I've been staying up trying to get, you know, my sound quality squared away and, and you know, streaming squared away, some crap like that. So I just kind of took a day off. I kind of do this different. I'm more lax, like, um, just reading this stuff. But... So it says Google recently announced it'll bring its smart compose to features from Gmail over to Google Docs. So um, this article is like predictive text. Um, so if, if you have like a Gmail account, and I'm, I have another article on Gmail account, Google can actually spend your whole, suspend your whole account and everything that you purchased under that email. Um, all that crap can be lost. I'm going to read that because it's important. Um, especially if you have a YouTube channel or you violate their new terms of service come December the 10th, then, um, you can be fine. Are you, if you're, if you violate the video standards by your video production, you can be fined up to $42,000 for each one of those fines. But then on top of that, um, they can suspend your Google account. And then you lose anything attached to that account. That's another article. So in this one, uh, if you have a Gmail account, which you type, you know, you're typing and then it has uh, what it thinks you might type next in, in the, uh, that comes up next. And you can choose if that's right or not. And it's kind of weirdly right more often than not. It's kind of strange, almost like it knows what you're thinking. I think it's weird as hell, but whatever. So it says, uh, the move will leverage the search giant's expertise and machine learning to empower consumers to streamline communication and save time, allowing them to live better, happier, healthier lives. This is okay, I'm sorry, that was awful. 
It probably won't make anyone happier or healthier. Google's phrase suggesting tool, you type looking and it two prompts forward to it. Has from the start been a little laden and depressing. Not so much because it's bad, but because it's good. This person goes on to say, I use it constantly because in those mundane emails about setting up appointments or going over details, it tends to suggest exactly what I need. That's, I have it on mine and I use it sometimes, but it's, it's weird. This is, that doesn't mean it isn't unnerving. It's worth asking. It's worth asking what kind of algorithmic suggestion uh, does to the way we speak and think. Will it make our language and writing more homogenous? Will we all talk in corporate jargon, circling back to things, hoping to pick up each other's brains, signing off every time with, quote, hope you're well. The internet promised to widely expand our culture, diversifying by virtue of access to so much content. That happens sort of. Even now the web is full of tiny little communities and unique cultures. Forms with their own vocabulary, group chats with inside jokes, successful YouTube stars you've never heard of, and thousands of little islands on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. At the same time, the contemporary digital is hardly a utopia of diversity. Just look at how quickly terms from African American vernacular get co-opted by the mainstream. Everyone is quote, woke now despite that term once being a very specific black skepticism of whiteness. Niche things go viral, creators with one hit amass millions of followers, and social media is often dominated by talk of already famous articles with New York Times and Hollywood blockbusters. So yes, we have access to, to more culture than ever before thanks to the internet, but the viral nature of the internet has also increased homogeneity and sameness. Will the same thing happen to writing and speech as we rely more and more on technology to complete our sentences for us? In her recent release book, Because Internet, linguistic Gretchen McCullough explains how the web is giving rise to uh, inventive uses of language, acronyms, new ways of deploying punctuation, or just new constructions like, quote, it me, or LOL what? That's true, but on the other hand, spelling is becoming more standardized, and language is changing more quickly as we are exposed to more com communities more frequently. That accelerated pace means people across the world gravitate towards the same usage. For example, my family members across the globe in India are using the same slang as I, a phenomenon we would never have seen before the web. But Google's Smart Compose isn't simply an effect of internet's global nature or the way in which texting or Twitter influence language. It is instead predicted on an algorithm meant to speed up and make language more efficient. The, the goal is not diversity or even clarity. The goal is simplicity. Algorithms tend uh, towards sameness. In the early 20th century, Russian literary, literary theorist Mikhail uh, Botton wrote about two competing pressures on language, the centripetal and the config, uh, centri centrifugal, sorry, uh, structures of power were uh, centripetal forces and centralized to homogenize language 
while for Bakhtin, centrifugal things like folk culture or marginalized voices, part of what he called um, a carnivalesque, made languages diverse. Machine learning works by taking what exists and then suggesting it back to you. In other words, algorithms are, are centrifugal. Are centrifugal in nature because they are based on feedback loops. They will inevitably suggest language or phasing that other people are are, are already using. I'm having a hard time reading tonight. I'm trying. I'm, the wind is blowing so hard outside tonight. I'm fo I keep hearing it outside the window, and then I'm trying to read and focus here, and my brain's going back and forth. It says it is hard to seriously say that one new feature is one piece of writing software will fundamentally change language. But Smart Compose is part of a broader pattern in digital culture that at least beckons people towards sameness. The rise of algorithms and things like writing software isn't going to doom us, but they are a centripetal force that you can either choose to go along with or resist. The world is too fast a place for people to express themselves, too many for Google to ruin language all by itself. We are nonetheless presented with a choice about what kind of diversity we wish to see in the world and what place tech has either fostering that uniqueness or simply reasserting what in the same what is the same and already exists. And without some awareness of that, we might end up quote circling back forever to one way of speaking. Our answers and our writing all a product of some gentle suggestions that are nonetheless more insidious in nature. More convenient. Uh, the app that I'm actually that I actually use to um, put these articles in. It's common. Um, a lot of people use it. It's OneNote, and in OneNote it has an immersive reader. So if I have all these articles that I don't want to uh, read, then what I do is I I load them all in i edit them all up and then i i sit there and just hit the immersive reader and i let my computer read all the articles uh yes it's lazy uh but you know sometimes i'm doing emails and i'm looking at other articles or you know checking breaking news uh, things of that nature and then you know just with my brain the way my brain works i can listen say listen to music and read a book at the same time i can uh, read a book listen to music and do i can do like three things at once so with that reading the articles you know in my earbuds while i'm sitting there reading other articles it just makes makes things a lot easier sometimes um i don't necessarily like the takeover of technology i i don't even like really being on camera you could probably obviously tell by the way i look away all the time um but it's just it, it just seems the further that we're getting along in our technology or producing technology at such a fast rate that it's always changing but the more that it changes the more invasive it becomes in our lives um i don't necessarily like it you know i've talked about myself and, and others have talked about the glitches that are going on inside uh, the smartphones, the Android phones that are going on inside of the um, iPhones. And then they're happening at such a fast rate. And I have another article about some more crap that's going on. Um, that people, I mean, can hack through apps. They can 
they, they can do all this stuff through technology. They can hack your cryptocurrency wallet, your bank accounts. If they can get your T or your key logs through ransomware, all that stuff, all this crap has holes in it. It can all be hacked. It's just, it's just technology. If man creates something, it usually will have a flaw and people, you know, idiots in this world just kind of live to exploit those flaws and scam people, which I think is bullshit, but it's just, it's nuts. So I, I've talked about this before. Um, you know, I talked about a report where Turkey had bought a S-400 defense system, missile defense system from uh, Russia. Uh, I think that was in 2016 or 17. Uh, I talked about, you know, why Russia has been invading Syria. Um, I talked about China, Asia's plan to kind of uh, open trade routes from Asia through the uh, Middle East up into Russia and the UK, and then the Asia Trade Agreement. Well, this report talks about, you know, uh, Turkey wants to start testing the Air 400 defense system, and I don't think our country is necessarily comfortable with that. So, uh, I think in this article we've given them a warning of, of, you know, not testing it. But, this is by Associated Press, but it's out of Ankara, Turkey. It says, uh, and this is just a short article. I, I kind of try to pay attention to everything. I'm a firm believer in uh, the Middle East being a catalyst for... Uh, the third world war so i pay attention on what's going on over there a lot uh, kind of almost obsessively and it has to do with biblical times so it says turkish media says Tur turkey is poised to get to begin testing russian made s-400 air defense system despite threats of sanctions from the united states so here's the deal with the sanctions we all know that um our president put uh sanctions on turkey recently well then not a lot of people are talking about this, but Erdogan went to the Chinese president and got a bailout for some ungodly amount of money. So enough to where it could pad his economy and he could do this type of stuff. Um, so all these people are making the Middle East, Turkey, Russia, Syria. Um, first of all, you have Iran, Turkey, and Russia in the Middle East that want to draft... Um, a declaration in Syria and they have no part of the government why while uh, Basar al-Ashad is hiding somewhere in a hole in the middle of the ground so you have those two trying are those three countries trying to dictate that you have them making alliances them opening trade routes you have Erdogan going to China for bailouts then you have warnings articles coming out today that the Chinese yuan is crashing that banks are crashing it's just so much crap going on uh, but, I mean, I don't see why Erdogan went and got money. I, I don't see why, you know, threat of more sanctions is going to stop this guy from doing what he wants to do. He's going to do it anyways. So this says, um, says the Milliot newspaper, which has close links to the government, said Monday that the military is planning to test the S-400s that they currently deployed at an air base on the outskirts of Ankara. Turkey took delivery of two Russian S-400 batteries this year, dismissing warnings from the United States that they pose threat to NATO security. As a result, Washington suspended Turkey's, Turkish participation in the multinational F-35 fighter jet program. U.S. legislators have warned sanctions if Turkey activates the system. 
as of today, I don't know if they have activated the system. I haven't seen anything in the news about it, but um, they probably have, or they probably will. Um, I, I, I don't see why Erdogan wouldn't do it. Um, if you're joining, it looks like, you know, a couple people are watching. If you join, you can call in a number at the bottom of the screen, scrolling across the bottom of the screen. There's also a chat. Uh, it will pop up there. You guys feel free to, you know, chat in the chat room. Or you can call a number on the scrolling on the bottom of the screen. If you want to share articles or have me pull an article up from the internet, or if you want to talk about any of the articles that I talk about on here, you guys can do that as well. So this is kind of sad. Um, I mean, it is sad. Some, some people look at Julian Assange as a hero. Some of them look at him as a traitor. I look at him as a meat, you know, um, a journalist. And he took what information he was given. And clearly under, you know, being a journalist, he released that material. And they want to prosecute him and say that he released, you know, top secret material and, and all that crap. But I think he went about it in a way that a journalist would do something, um, and then, you know, because of that came out, and I guess that they ruled that they couldn't prosecute on that fact, and there was a whole rape allegation that came up. And, um, I think that recently got dropped, so I don't know what they're doing to this guy here, but this article says, Julian Assange could die in prison. Dozen of international doctors warn UK WikiLeaks founder may need urgent medical care. His medics claim there has been a rapid decline of his health, in Belmarsh. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange could die in prison without urgent medical care, according to an open letter signed by more than 60 doctors. The medics from the UK, Australia, Europe, Sri Lanka expressed, quote, serious concerns about the 48-year-old Assange's fitness to, stand, uh, fitness to stand trial in a letter addressed to Home Security, uh, Pratai Patel. I'm just going to call him Patel. Uh, he is being held in Belmarsh Prison in southeast London ahead of hearing in February to fight extradition to the U.S., where he faces 18 charges, including conspiring to hack into a Pentagon computer. Assange is accused of working with former U.S. military intelligence analyst Chelsea Ma uh, Manning to increase hundreds of thousands of classified documents. This is Assange is accused of working with former U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Met Manning. I just read that part. It says the doctors are calling for Assange to be transferred to the university teaching hospital, where he can be addressed, where he can be assessed and treated by an expert medical team. There's pictures of him there. I don't know how recent that one is. That one there is the one after he got um, arrested after they pulled him out of the embassy. There. Some of these are just iconic photos of him, but this is the letter, which uh, has also been copied to Shadow Home Security. Diane Abbott says, from a medical point of view, one of the evidence currently available on the evidence currently available, we have a serious concerns about Mr. Assange fitness to stand trial in February 2020. Quote, most importantly, it is our opinion that Mr. Assange requires urgent expert medical assessment of both his physical and psychological state of health. Any medical treatment indicated should be administered in a properly equipped and expertly staffed university teaching hospital. Uh, it says, where such urgent 
assessment and treatment uh, not to take place, we have real concerns on the evidence currently available that Mr. Assange could die in prison. The medical situation is thereby urgent. There is no time to lose. Last week, WikiLeaks welcomed the decision by the Swedish authorities to drop a rape investigation into Assange. He was jailed for 50 weeks in May for breaching his bailout conditions after going into hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy in London to avoid extradition to Sweden over the sex offense allegations, which he has always denied. Assange has been in custody since he was dramatically removed from the building in April and at a hearing last month appeared to struggle to say his own name, telling Westminster Magistrates Court, I can't think properly. Dr. Lisa Johnson, a clinical psychologist in Australia, and one, uh, one of the letter's signatories said, given the rapid decline of his health in Belmarsh Prison, Julian Assange must immediately be transferred to a university teaching hospital for appropriate and specialized medical care. If the UK government fails to heed doctors' advice by urgently arranging such a transfer on medical grounds, there is a very real possibility that Mr. Assange may die. As it stands, serious questions about around not only the health impacts of Mr. Assange's detention conditions, but his medical fitness uh, to stand trial and prepare his defense. Independent specialist medical assessment is therefore needed to determine whether Julian Assange is medically fit for any of his depending legal proceedings. Consistent with his commitment, its commitment to human rights and rule of law, the UK government must heed the urgent warning of medical professionals from around the world and transfer Julian Assange to an appropriately specialized and expert hospital setting before it's too late. I hope they give the guy the, the help that he needs. Um, like I said, I don't necessarily, I mean, he wasn't found guilty on the, on the rape charge. Um, if he did, or if he didn't conspire with Chelsea Manning, I think, you know, Chelsea Manning did his or her time to, um, in, in jail. And then whether that hacked information was given to him and then he released it, he released possibly, you know, sensitive information that he shouldn't have, but the guy's sick, give him some damn help. He at least deserves that. He's a human being, he's not a damn fuck. So this article here, I don't know if you guys like, you know, Breck Kavanaugh or whatever, since that whole escapade that happened with his crap. Um, and then we come to find out it was all lied about. Just ridiculous. So this article says the Supreme Court is about to hear the biggest guns case in over a decade. Um, he's definitely a pro-gun advocate. But it says, um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus New York. Uh, the city of New York, the biggest gun case to reach the Supreme Court in more than a decade, begin with a tiny dispute. New York City offers two kinds of licenses to gun owners. A, quote, carry license permits them to carry a handgun for, quote, target practice, hunting, or self-defense. The less permiss uh, permit permissive, quote, premise license meanwhile permits gun owners to have and possess in his dwelling a handgun under a new repeated rule uh, premise license holders were only allowed to bring the gun out of their home for limited purpose 
including the practice of shooting at uh, at a seven specific gun ranges. So the plaintiffs in the New York State rifle brought a narrow challenge to the framework, as a federal appeals court explained in an opinion upholding an opinion. Oh man. In an opinion upholding the city's repeated rule, some of the plaintiffs seek to transport their handguns to shooting ranges and comp competitions outside New York, New York City. One plaintiff also owns two homes, and he wants to be able to transport the same gun between these two homes. That's it. They, uh, they sued for a small expansion of the rights afforded to the people. Um, with premises license to do the very thing that these plaintiffs wish to do. That renders the case moot, or so one would think. Yet the Supreme Court has so far refused to dismiss the case as moot. And if the plaintiffs have their way, the court will wind up deciding a much bigger question than uh, the one it originally agreed to hear. Paul Clement, the prominent conservative lawyer representing the plaintiffs, submitted a brief that presents the case as a grand fight over, quote, draconian, uh, draconian sorry, restrictions on the possession and transport of handguns. Even though his clients already won the New York City and state changing its laws to accommodate them, Clement wants to proceed. And he's arguing the court to see, to see this case as a much bigger challenge than the one his client raised in the lower courts. It's a highly unusual move, and the Supreme Court rules instruct lawyers that merits briefs may, quote, not raise additional questions or change the substance of the questions originally presented to the court. In any event, it is not hard to guess why gun right advocates hopes that this, uh, that this case becomes larger. The case was first brought up in, brought up in 2013 with a relative, relatively moderate Anthony Kennedy on court in 2019. Kennedy is gone, and the most conservative... Or the more conservative Brett Kavanaugh is in his place. New York State Rifle could significantly significantly expand Second Amendment rights now that we have some more conservative Supreme Court. The plaintiff's original modest ask, in other words, made sense when the probable thought when they probably thought they could only win in incremental victories before a relatively moderate court. But now they most likely will have five votes for something much bigger. So why not ask for a revolution? Kennedy's retirement is likely to change everything about the Second Amendment. Months before his death earlier this year, retired Justice John Paul Stevens revealed some of the court's secret deliberations in District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008. The landmark Supreme Court decision holding that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to bear arms. In Heller, the court divided five to four along ideological lines, and Kennedy joined his fellow conservatives in the majority. Yet in 2018, interview with the New York Times' Adam Liptak, Stevens revealed that Kennedy requested, quote, some important changes to the original draft of Heller's opinion. This language stated that Heller should not be taken to cast doubt on many existing gun laws. The final Heller opinion states that, Quote, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Heller suggests that, quote, long-standing pro prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or law-abiding are, are 
laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on commercial sale of arms are all valid, as are bans on dangerous and unusual weapons. Thanks to Justice Stevens, we, we now know that such mitigation language probably would not have made it into the Heller opinion without Kennedy's intervention. Kavanaugh, to put it mildly, does not share Kennedy's trepidation about an overly expansive Second Amendment. Shortly after the Supreme Court decided Heller, the District of Columbia uh, passed a law banning semi-automatic, quote, assault weapons and requiring gun owners to register those weapons. The law never reached the Supreme Court, but a lower appeals court did hear a challenge to this new law in 2011. Case called Heller v. District of Columbia. Dick Heller was a party in both Heller cases, hence the familiar, uh, similar case names. In the second Heller case, two judges, both of whom the Republican appointees, largely upheld the new law, though they did not call further proceedings on the district gun registration uh, requirement. The third judge was Kavanaugh, and he argued in dissent that both D.C. bans on semi-automatic rifles and its gun registration requirement are unconstitutional under Heller. Kavanaugh wants to significantly expand the scope of the Second Amendment. At least until now, the Supreme Court has been reluctant to hear Second Amendment cases. The 2008 Heller decision was the first in the American history that the court held the Second Amendment protest in individual right to own a gun. Since then, the courts heard just one significant Second Amendment case, McDonald versus City of Chicago in 2010. In that case, that Heller applies with the same force to federal government and uh, to the states. Prior to Heller, the Supreme Court rejected the thesis that the Second Amendment protects the individual right, holding instead that, quote, obvious purpose of the amendment was the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. Well, who else is going to hold you guys accountable? But anyways, if you guys want to go on to hear this, um, I'll read the rest of it. The link's in the description. Um, I don't think you should give firearms to mentally ill people. Um, I don't think... I think that if you're... My personal opinion, I am a uh, Second Amendment advocate. In uh, the state of Oklahoma, we have the Constitutional Carry, starting November 1st. Um... I think that if you decide you want to carry a firearm, you should probably get the proper training, although it's not required in the state. Um, I don't want to see people who are put in situations pull a firearm, for one, that don't intend to use it, and for two, when they pull their firearm, uh, they shake like a leaf on a tree. If you're scared of your own gun, leave it at home. Um, don't carry it in public. But yes, I think there should be laws on people with mental illness. Um, but I also think law-abiding citizens should have the right to keep and bear arms, should be able to carry a firearm, um, and uh, that should be, you know, part of our human rights to protect ourselves, fend for ourselves and protect ourselves. And if you alienate us from that right, then you pretty much have taken control of us, uh, you know, our right to defend ourselves even against a tyrannical government. I'm not calling for anyone to go do anything like that, but... Um, people should have the right to protect themselves against anything and everything without the say of you know the government stepping in and saying you don't have the right to do that so this is crazy they say that this wasn't released but I do know uh, Facebook has a um, facial recognition software and it's in I, I think the pictures so if you take a picture 
um, or you have it activated on your app. If someone that it knows or recognizes from a picture or standing in the camera before you take a picture, um, if they have the facial recognition software activated and you have it activated, um, then it'll pop up their name on there. You can go through the app settings if you turn all that garbage off. But this one is like that they tested out on uh, people in their own organization at Facebook that didn't, they say it wasn't released is even weirder than, um, you know, the, the, the picture form of it that they released to us. Um, this is nuts. Like it says somehow Facebook's facial recognition was even creepier than we first thought. It says in this, in, in case we needed another reminder of Facebook's mass surveillance capabilities, which if you guys don't know this, um, they sell your meta metadata, so they're profiting off of, of you. They also have your personal information. Um, who's to say where their information goes? Uh, I think that they probably use it for nefarious reasons. They would never admit that, but um, I'm sure that they do. Um, as far as the pictures go, I don't. If if it, if they're going through Facebook and they know that app belongs to you then they know the camera's taking a picture of you. So, I mean, a facial recognition in the app compared to, well, this is, you know, Ryan using his Facebook app. So we're activating his camera and it's recording while he's using Facebook. Then you obviously know who it is. Uh, but this is, I guess, is just one more way to, to track people or put you in a database. Our phones do the crap anyways. If you have a smartphone, then you can activate the facial recognition software and, and just hold it up to your face and it scans your face. You can... It has all the biometric crap, which is probably going um, into a database for the, um, what is that called that they have in China? Don't tell anybody. Um, it says, in case we needed another reminder of Facebook's mass surveillance capabilities, we now know the company once built an app entirely for real-time facial recognition. This is a social media giant experimented with a camera app that could identify people using Facebook facial recognition tech, according to a new report from Business Insider. The app was reportedly tested internally with Facebook employees between 2015 and 2016 and was an example of, quote, of future innovations at the company. According to BI, the app uh, was fairly rudimentary with a basic camera interface that could identify individuals and show their Facebook name and profile photo. You know, sort of like a dystopian version of Snapchat. In a statement, a, face, a Facebook spokesperson said the app was never distributed outside of its own employees. And they probably have it. And that those who were testing it could only use the app with other Facebook workers and existing Facebook friends who had facial recognition settings enabled on their account. As a way to learn about new technologies, our teams regularly build apps to use internally, um, the spokesperson said. The app described here was only available to Facebook employees and could only recognize employees and other friends who had face recognition enabled. Though BI reports the app hasn't been in use for years, the fact that Facebook created the app and showed it off is an example of employee, quote, innovation underscores why Facebook use of facial recognition has been so controversial. Facebook has more than 2 billion users, many of whom likely don't realize the company can store their biometric data. And even though it has so far only used facial recognition for photo tagging, 
The idea of its tech being deployed uh, more widely is unsettling to say the least. And Facebook doesn't exactly have a great track record when it comes to our privacy, which is why Facebook's use of facial recognition technology has been widely criticized by officials and privacy advocates. Earlier this year, the company finally changed its facial recognition settings to make it easier for users to opt out of facial recognizing photo tags. That, that feature, which Facebook originally labeled, quote, tag suggestions, is currently the subject of a multi-billion dollar lawsuit and has been called, quote, deceptive by the Federal Trade Commission. A lot of people aren't happy with the FTC right now. Given that, it's not surprising the company opted to stop testing that particularly inter particular internal app, but it is important reminder that Facebook is very, uh, very good at finding even creepier ways of watching its billions of users, regardless of what Mark Zuckerberg says about privacy. They're all up in your business. I'll tell you what they do. And um, if you don't believe me, you can look at multiple uh, interviews with Edward Snowden. But so the United States Constitution is supposed to protect us against um, infringements on us by our government. So to get around that, what they do is they hire corporations to gather the intel via contracts with it could be any alphabet boy company, the FBI, the CIA, local police department, any of those companies. And then they use those companies who sneak in wording inside of their um, either terms of service or, you know, uh, when you go to download an app, uh, you accept um, you the app settings and then it asks for access to your camera, your microphone, your, your uh, photos, your contacts, all that crap. So when we do that, uh, they're using corporations to go around their our protection uh, via the Constitution and illegal search and seizure, Fourth Amendment, and they are using that to gather the information through corporations, and then they can go into these corporations if they figure somebody's doing something nefarious, illegal, whatever it may be, ask the corporation via warrant a lot of times they don't even go through the process to get the warrant just contact the corporation for release of the information and then they have the information so it's not the government straightforward lying or you know uh, lying and stealing well i mean i guess they are lying and stealing from us if they're using someone else to do it um but they're having someone do it like in third person um if you don't know this facebook has um facebook has contract with uh well, allegedly, Facebook has a contract with Central Intelligence and also uh, Amazon, who has uh, probably billions of people's um, financial or access to financial information. Uh, he did. I think he just lost the contract to Microsoft uh, through their Jedi Cloud um, um, contract, which basically holds their... I guess it's like a, a Google or it's like Google Cloud or or OneNote would be or not OneNote OneDrive would be to us. It's kind of like that. Uh, so Jedi is what holds the government's information. It's their cloud system. I think he just lost that, but he did have a contract with um, the allegedly had a contract with the Central Intelligence Agency, and that's what they do. It's according to Edward Snowden. So. They basically use corporations as a third party to go behind your back 
steal your metadata, um, have you not pay attention to the um, permissions on the app, you just click OK because, hey, this app is interesting, it's convenient, and then you open it up to all types of activities, and then they got your private information, and the government can basically step in and get that information anytime via warrant. That's what they do. Um, if you don't believe me, go. you can go look it up. You can go listen to some of his um, interviews and podcasts. He, he tells all, man. Um, he's like the security expert. That's what he was hired to do in the um, when he worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. So this is important because a whole lot of people have... Let me get a drink. A whole lot of people have um, Google emails. Aside from, you know, uh, Yahoo.com, um, Microsoft emails, Yahoo emails, AOL emails. There's, you know, a whole range of different email providers. But uh, I, would, I would guess the majority of people out there probably have Google account of some sort, whether you had to sign up for one real quick or whatever it may be. But... This article is important because it says Google can completely shut down your Google account and here's the info you need. So what this means, if you're banned from Google and you have apps that are attached to that Google account, so any app that you've purchased with your email, that email that gets suspended, you can lose that. If you have a Google Pay account that is attached to that email, all your personal information can be that is attached to that, um, all that stuff can be banned. You can lose all that stuff. And they can do it without warning. Um, this goes in to kind of tell you how you could get it back if you do get suspended. It also, you know, uh, kind of goes in to tell you how to protect yourself from, from this happening to you. It's just crazy. Um, I look at it this way. If they suspend your account, do they suspend it and delete it completely from their server? Or do they still have access to your financial information on their server? Can they access that financial information on their server or your personal information on your server, including... Uh, credit card statements go to the email uh, banking information goes to the email uh, any private information that goes to that email if they suspend are they completely deleting it from their server or are they allowing um, access to it are they selling the information what are they doing with the information that's what I would like to know so I'm going to get into this article um if you haven't listened to Markiplier's video, uh, people spammed his chat when he was doing a live stream. They suspended a bunch of people's emails attached um, to their Google. Google owns YouTube and all that. Uh, they own the damn internet. So, oops. It says, imagine waking up one day to find out that your Google account uh, is banned permanently with no way to get it back. Which, uh, you would likely be upset by this and consider it to be a major inconvenience, right? Depending on how integrated you are within Google ecosystem, a permaban could potentially be much more of more, much more than inconvenience. It could be devastating. A banned Google account means no access to things you might use every day, including Gmail, Google Drive, Google Photos, and Google Pay. It means any playlist you've made on YouTube are, go are gone. And it means uh, no longer assess 
accessing your music saved in the cloud through Google Play Music. It means you need to pre-purchase or repurchase all the apps, movies, and books you've bought from the Google Play Store. So you're just throwing your damn money away too. Somebody's got to come out with another operating system, which I heard uh, Huawei has, but I don't know if that's going to be available in this country. <laughs> <coughs> It says, although the vast majority of, use, of users will never experience a banned Google account, it can and does happen. We're going to summarize the basics of this problem as best we can, giving you all the info you need on how long or how and why this happens. We will also let you know what you can do if your account is banned and most importantly, how to prevent it from happening at all. Yes, Google can ban your account. Just in case you're surprised to find out this news, yes, Google has a it has every right to terminate your account and can and sorry. You can read the full terms of service related to the Google accounts here. And like I said, all these articles are posted in the description. But all you really need to know is in the line below. We may suspend or stop providing our services to you if you do not comply with our terms of uh, terms or policies or if we are investigating suspe suspected misconduct it can get much more clear than that if google doesn't like what you are doing it can suspend or terminate your account at any moment in the tos document google says that it can ban your account if you misuse or quote interfere with its services the language makes it sound as if google is only concerned about people using a google product in a way that is not intended, such as hacking the Play Store to get items for free. It also seems as if Google is primarily focused on attacks of its products, such as D DDoS attacks. The language in Google's TOS is very broad. However, the language is very broad. Google has full power to decide on whether or not someone, quote, misused a service which gives you, gives you, the consumer, not much of a leg to stand on. In other words, Google has a ton of power over your account and there's not much you can do about it. Here's a recent example. A slew of YouTubers had their Google accounts, not just their YouTube accounts, banned for spamming a video feed with emojis. That was what I was referring to, to Markiplier's video. Um, yes, that, that it happened. That, however, the YouTuber who created the video in question encouraged users um, to just do that. So it was unnecessary for Google to go as far as to perform full account bans. To make matters worse, it took Google days before reactivated everyone's accounts. Even then, some experienced data loss. This is why it's very important for you to be careful and stay informed. A banned Google account could be devastating. As mentioned, there are many Google services on which we rely. Google alone has over 1.2 billion active users, or roughly 15% of the entire global population. A Google account getting banned could likely be devastating for the simple fact that you, could, you couldn't access Gmail anymore. For Android users, though, a banned account means their entire smartphone doesn't work correctly. With a banned account, you'd no longer be able to sync your data, download your apps, or get notifications for some of the most prominent applications on your phone. The only way around this uh, would be to log in with a new account and essentially start from scratch. 
I have multiple ones, but one of them runs my phone. The rest are just extra emails that I have that I use for, uh, you know, obviously just getting email. But it says, just to make sure you understand the uh, gravity of the situation, here's an, uh, here's an incomplete list of Google's own properties that you, uh, that you would not be able to use fully with your current Google account should it get banned. Okay, so Android, Chrome, which I don't use Chrome anymore. I use DuckDuckGo. Everyone use DuckDuckGo. Um, they block people stalking your stuff, such as Google. Uh, so Chrome, Chrome OS, Wear OS, Chromecast, Google Home, Google Nest, Google Wi-Fi, Docs, Sheets, and Slides, Google Drive, Google Play Store, Gmail, Stadia, Google Maps, Google Fi, Google Fit, Google Pay, Google Photos, AdSense, and YouTube. Not only would your access be gone or severely limited for those products, but in many cases, you wouldn't even have access to any of the data associated with the account. That could mean for some or, some or all uh, of your important documents in Drive, your cherished pictures and photos, your email, your smartphone, and on and on. You wouldn't even be able to connect to the internet at home if you rely on Google Wi-Fi. Although there are plenty of examples of people getting unexpectedly banned by Google, see previous section for this article, or this one, you can click on those two there. It says most people will likely go their whole lives and not see a band. If it does happen though, you do have options. It says Google account ban, here's what to do. If your Google account is banned and you've made, and you made your way to this article looking for assistance, you're in luck. There are a few steps you can take to potentially get your account and data back. The first thing you want to do is to find out why your account has been banned. That's simple, and there's a link in this article there, and it's posted in the, in the description. And then seeing what a message pops up once you complete your sign-in. Once you're logged in, you can attempt to restore your account right from the same page. Just hit, quote, try to restore button on the page, and then follow the instructions. Thankfully, Google offers an appeals process to deal with account bans. This is where they really start screwing with you, though. Um, a lot of people that tried this from the video that I referenced, um, they were going through the ban process trying to get their accounts back, and uh, they would get denied by the first initial uh, process of appeal, and then they were getting denied through the second part of the process of appeals. Then they were contacting Google directly on Twitter, and then they were just getting uh, basically a, uh, a bot reply. And that bot reply was saying, uh, once your you know account has been appealed, there's not much we can do after that. Um, it's pretty much out of our hands. So they kind of screw with you on that aspect of it. So um, it says, while you're awaiting, you can attempt to download at least some of your account data just to open that just open up the apps uh, you use Google Photos Google Drive etc while logged in on your band account and examine the page that appears for some apps there will be a link to instructions on how to download the app data just in case Google doesn't fit the, uh, fight the ban or lift the ban unfortunately if your automatic pills doesn't work and then Google rejects your manual appeal there's not much you can do 
You can try to gain traction on social media if you feel your account has been ha, was banned illegit for illegitimate reasons and Google might change its mind to avoid bad press. But once you've gone through that appeal process, you're pretty much through. Be proactive. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. It says chances are incredibly... Um, Chances are incredibly good that nearly everyone reading this article will never see a Google uh, uh, a Google account banned. As long as you are generally law-abiding citizen and aren't using or attempting to use your Google account for nefarious ends, you will likely be safe. But because Google's over um, over reaching overarching reach across, uh, across nearly every facet of our electronic lives it's very important to remember that it has the power to take everything you use away at any moment therefore the absolute best way to prepare for potential of a banned google account is to avoid relying entirely on the company by doing this you protect yourself as best you can from an unexpected ban even if you follow all the rules of each service that's not a guarantee Google won't ban you anyway. So it says, see, it also says there, see the Moji's example above. I gave you guys that example. It says, multiple accounts and local backups are your best friends if you're worried about seeing a Google account ban. For example, if you store a lot of pictures and videos in Google Photos, keep backup and hard drive um, you own, keep it on a backup hard drive you own just in case. Do the same for your music and Google Play. Uh, music or documents and files within Google Drive. Even if you don't keep a backup too often, you'll at least still have some of your data if your account gets unexpectedly banned down the road. Another way to be proactive is to create different Google accounts for different services. For example, you can make a smart home um, Google account, which links to your Nest products, your Chromecast, your Google Wi-Fi router, etc. You could then have another Google account for your media files, another for your smartphone, and on and on. That way, if for some reason um, one of these accounts gets banned, the other account remains unaffected. Yes, both of these me methods are inconvenient and kind of go against the whole idea of simplicity of a single Google account, but if Google has all the power and there are numerous instances of account bans for illegitimate reasons, it might be better to be safe rather than sorry if this is something that concerns you. You will need to determine for yourself what links you should go to in order to protect your data. But the re but rest assured, Google has a lot of power here. Um, they've also created, or so they say, um, they say that they've created, um, Oh, what is that? Some computer supremacy bullcrap. I can't even think. I'm drawing a blank right now. That they can, uh, you know, calculate a, a, pro a, a simple math problem that would have taken them 10 years to do the math problem. They can do now do it in like two minutes, two seconds, some crazy crap. Um, like I said... I have multiple uh, Google accounts and I, I think I use some of them for downloading you know apps on on one opposed to the main one that I use um, 
you know, I have one that I use specifically for YouTube in case it gets the boot. Um, you know, I, I've, I've kind of discovered that, you know, like just having everything kind of diversified so that you're not having to deal with this crap. Because like I said, all your personal information, if you get like, say you're, say you're dealing, you know, you're dealing with medical issues that you don't necessarily want everybody to know about. And it's in that email account that gets banned you lose that information for instance i had a um, a yahoo account and they they've been hacked numerous amounts of times uh i contacted yahoo i think four years later because i had some pictures of, of um, my great-grandmother in there that i wanted off well because of a hack uh they deleted a bunch of email accounts that weren't being used and they pretty much deleted all the information that was on the server that was within those accounts and I wasn't able to access it or re-access it to get that information back. It's pretty much what, what would happen. So, you know, financial records you get sent from your from your uh, credit card company, um, your doctor's office, whatever it may be. Any of that information that gets sent to that email account, you could, you know, pretty much be screwed at the end of the day because, you know, they're, they're choosing to... Um, ban your account so you know uh, I talk a lot about uh, stocks cryptocurrency uh, I don't necessarily think they're all a good idea I don't think investing a lot of money in the stock market or in cryptocurrency is gonna make you instantly rich uh, none of those things I think you know they hyperinflate or prop up the stock market uh, they probably do the same thing with crypto but this is uh, on one of the um, stocks that I mentioned in a prior video and it's called Ethereum. Um, so, you know, I went and I invested in uh, a couple cannabis stocks, not this one. It's not available on one of the things that I use, but um, I invested a little bit in it. It took a pretty huge hit. Well, a in the amount of money that I have invested in, which isn't very much at all. Um, it took a, a pretty large hit over the past couple days. So, um, this article says, is Ethereum the best large cap cannabis stock right now? So the world of cannabis has changed significantly over the past year as some of the sector's uh, top companies have lost much of their appeal. Both Canopy Growth and Aurora Cannabis, the cannabis sector's two largest stocks by cap, have both seen their share prices plummet alongside the in industry as a whole, which, like I just said, within the last... I think, well, Marby four days or no, three days. Yeah. Four days since I've invested, um, I've already lost I think 70 cents. Um, it says, whereas large, ca uh, large cap pot stocks seem certain, uh, to su succeed a year ago, investors are looking at these companies in a new light following recent disappointment quarterly results. However, the Wall Street analyst remains optimistic about one large cap pot stock. While Ethereum um, and its New York Stock Exchange is APHA, if you're listening to this, it says started the year on a sour note. And there are quite a few good reasons this stock has now become one of the best in the industry for its size. Let's take a look at it at a few of them. It says a record of profitability. 
It says, in a market where most pot stock, especially large cap cannabis companies, continue disappointing investors in terms of profitability, Afiria has already posted two impressive quarters of positive earnings. Uh, of positive earnings. In its most recent quarter, Afiria reported total sales of 126 million Canadian dollars with a profit of one 15.8 million Canadian dollars. Its peers' canopy growth brought in revenue of uh, 76.6 million Canadian dollars, but posted a loss of 374.6 million in recent fiscal quarter 2020 results. The Aurora, which I have, uh, I actually own a complete share in Aurora, and I almost own a complete share in Canopy. Not doing too good. It says uh, Aurora had net revenues of 75.2 million and a net loss of 39.7 million. Compared to these figures, Aferia's profitability is a breath of fresh air. Uh, there's a chart there that shows that. It says while Aferia's figures have eclipsed uh, those of larger rivals, the truth is that most of its 126 million Canadian dollars uh, figure wasn't due to cannabis sales, but to its recent acquired EU pharmaceutical distribution business, DC Pharma. Around 95.3 million of Afiria's uh, income came from this company, with only 35 million directly coming from cannabis sales. Canadian cannabis companies technically fall under the designation of, quote, agricultural companies, which allows them to make fair value adjustments that can drastically impact their reported income with a bit of accounting magic. First, uh, first the quarter, Aferia benefited from a net 17.9 million, uh, million dollar or Canadian dollar bonus from these fair value adjustments on its cannabis assets. While Aferia isn't the only company that does this, without adjustments, Aferia wouldn't have been profitable this quarter after all. However, even if 17.9 million uh, bonus is factored out. Aferia's losses would have been significantly smaller than Canopy and Aurora's, only coming in at a loss of 2.1 million. Comparing cultivate cultivation costs, it says Aferia has Aferia has seen its cultivation cost increase, with its cash cost to produce dried cannabis rising to 14 or 1.3 sorry a dollar and 43. Um, Per, uh, per gram compared to the previous quarters of $1.35 a gram, and these are Canadian dollars. It's worrying that production costs have gone up this quarter as more cannabis company um, produces. The lower these costs should be, operations become more efficient. However, a one-time increase for a single quarter isn't something to be overly concerned about unless it becomes a trend. Aurora, however, has more than surpassed Aferia as a low-cost producer, reporting a cash cost per gram of just 85 cents and a 25% reduction from the previous quarter of $1.14. Although Canopy Growth doesn't report its cost uh, per gram in the same way that Aferia and Aurora Cannabis do, historically the company has been a higher cost producer than its competitors. Can uh, Canopy reported Inventory production cost of 86.3 million with a quarterly production output of 40,570 kilograms. This breaks down to approximately $2.12 cost per gram produced. 
Why is Aferia so cheap? It says, however, what truly makes Aferia such a compelling investment investment is extraordinarily cheap valuation. Aferia trades at 5.3 price to sell uh, PS ratio, whereas its peers all trade at higher PS ratios. Here's another chart here, uh, but I'm not going to, you know, continue to read all the financial crap about this. But if you guys, like I said, if you're interested in just playing around with it, um, if they legalize, say, say that the more act passes the, the Senate, which is highly unlikely just due just due to the cause or just due to the fact that the Republicans, um, are the majority in the Senate and they they tend to be more conservative than obviously liberals. Um, and they're very conservative of, of conservative about this type of stuff. I don't necessarily think that it'll pass the Senate, but if it does pass the Senate and these companies are allowed to import their cannabis into our country, you will probably see these stocks shoot up. Um, you know, I'm no like stock expert, but if it were to happen, if they were to pass the Moore Act, it is a possibility that these stocks would increase, um, dramatically increase. Uh, right now, I will tell you this Aurora, just for one share of Aurora cannabis, I think it last time I checked today at closing was probably $2.70 a share. That's the cheapest. Now, cannabis is like $19, $20 per share. Um, I'm not sure about Aferia. But if you want to get into it, you know, ground level, I'm not giving you financial advice, but if you just want to screw with it, you know, play around with it, whatever. Um, I mean, it's out there for people who like stocks. Found this interesting because, um, as you know, or as it seems, the internet seems to be owned more and more by corporations. It seems as we go further and further in our life that they seem that they have more pull and influence, uh, not only them, but also the media. So, uh, this article is about, uh, uh, web inventor has an ambitious plan to take back the net. So, you know, there's been plans with other countries cutting their access and not necessarily cutting it, but, um, reducing you know certain governments access or control of the internet and totally taking themselves outside of ours there's also elon musk wanting to create his complete wi-fi grid with um, satellites that are getting in the way of astronomers right now and you know you can have 5g wi-fi all over the country so there's uh, there will probably be more um, options out there in the future but this article i just thought was interesting because of all the mass surveillance and, and crap that goes on with the internet and, and this guy's idea of um, what he could pro possibly initiate in order to get gain back control of the internet uh, to the people. So it says Worldwide Web Inventor Tim Berners-Lee released an ambitious rule uh, released an ambitious rule book on online governance a bill of rights and obligation for the internet designed to counteract the growing prevalence of such anti-democratic positions and misinformation and mass surveillance and censorship. The product of a year's work by the World Wide Web's foundation where Berners-Lee is founding director 
the quote contract of the web seems commitments from governments and industry to make and and keep knowledge freely available a digital policy agenda a true to design vision of a 30 year old web the contract is non-binding however and funders and partners in the endeavor include google and facebook whose data collecting business models and sensation rewarding algorithms have been blamed for exacerbating online toxicity we haven't had a fairly complex fairly complete plan uh, plan of action for the um, for the web going forward Berners Berners Lee said in an interview this is the first time we've had a rule book in which responsibility is being shared for instance the contract proposes a framework for protecting online privacy and personal data with a, with clearly defined national laws that give individuals greater control over the data collected about them um, independent well-resourced regulators would offer the public effective means for uh, redress and current laws and institutions don't measure up to that standard. Does Amnesty International just release a report charging that Google and Facebook's business models are predicated on the abuse of human rights? Berners Lee nevertheless says that, quote, having them in the, in the room is really important. He said both companies had approached the foundation seeking participation. Well, like I mentioned earlier in the other stuff, um, they spy for the government basically. It says, uh, the nonprofit's foundation top donors include the Swedish, Canadian, and U.S. governments, and the Ford, and um, I can't even pronounce that name, foundations. One of its biggest challenges is growing uh, balkanization. Balkanization. Read ahead of myself. Of the internet with national governments led by China. Russia and Iran uh, exerting increases technical control over their domestic network, tightening censorship and surveillance. The trend for balkanization is really worrying and in extreme. It's extreme at the moment in Iran. And as you guys know, I read in another article that the uh, information director in Iran um, shut off the internet and they were, I think the internet was down for four days, 72 hours, some crazy like that. It says a strong government exhibits tolerance and the computer scientists added for other voices, um, opposition voices, foreign voices to be heard by its citizens. So how to prevent governments from restricting internet access at their borders? One approach said Bernard Lee, uh, I'm sorry, Berners Lee could be financial pressure. Multinational lenders would condition lower interest rates, for example, on the nation's willingness to let information flow freely on domestic networks. So we'll see how that goes. That MK Ultra thing, I don't know. I might let my computer read it for you guys. It's kind of long. Like I said, if you are listening to this on the podcast, uh, if you if you ever decide you want to watch live, um, you can you know you can join in and you can call in live it's a lot better with a back and forth with other people sharing their ideas their philosophies their uh, opinions on things it's it's a lot easier to do you know to have this whole thing 
right now it's just me reading the news um so you know you can call in from anywhere you want to um and just call the phone number that's scrolling across the screen if you're listening it's one four zero eight six three eight zero nine six eight and the meeting id is five three four two three three four seven five eight you can just call that and uh, it'll bring you straight to me and then i will monitor the phone calls you can share your opinion you can share articles by going uh, by emailing them to me or going to google hangouts at kingsmanreport2019 at gmail.com you can send those in my email and then i research those later and i share a lot of them on here people share news articles with me all the time on on facebook is where i find a lot of this stuff and then i just scour the news pretty much all day this is an mq9 reaper well I guess I better read the title. It says, American military loses drone over Libyan capital. So it says, an MK-9 Reaper remotely piloted aircraft soars over Southern California skies on a training flight on September 15, 2016. As that picture is there. If you're listening, it's just a picture of one of our military drones. So this is um, out of Cairo. It says, the U.S. military said Friday it lost an unmanned drone aircraft over the Libyan capital of Tripoli. Uh, where rival armed groups have been fighting for control for the city uh, of the city for months. The U.S. African Command said the drone was lost Thursday while assessing the security situation and monitoring extremist activity. AFRICOM did not give a reason for the drone's loss, but said it was investigating. Uh, but said it was investigating. It said the drone operations in Libya were quote fully coordinated with appropriate government officials. The five gun, a uh, five-inch gun. Um, I'm going to read that part there. It says, since 2015, Libya has been divided between two governments. I also have another um, article on an area. Same as over there. It says, since 2015, Libya has divided between two governments, one based on Tripoli and the other one, or Tripoli and the other one in the country's east. Forces loyal to the Eastern government have been trying to re- uh, wrest control of the capital since April. And it says an Italian, Italian, an Italian drone was shot down Wednesday southeast of Tripoli by forces loyal to the Eastern government. In September, the U.S. military said it carried out several airstrikes air against the Islamic State group in Libya, killing more than 40 mili- um, militants. Those were the first U.S. strikes in the northern African country in over a year. It says oil-rich Libya descended into chaos in 2011 when an international military coalition helped rebels overthrow a longtime audio, uh, autocrat uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Islamic extremists have exploited the chaos to expand their reach in the country. That's just a short article. Uh, I keep saying that they're probably going to see... Um, a war breakout via proxy war and if you don't know what proxy war is it basically means arms or machinery you uh, sold to other countries may be used to you know perpetrate an act of war on another country and that's what will be the catalyst to cause war to blame it on um, one of our allies overseas and that will probably be the precursor to world war three within the Middle East. So, I mean, you never know with that type of stuff, but 
it is a possibility. So I'm gonna let the computer play this just because, um, and a lot of it is just, it's crazy. Uh, this story is just, it's wild. And I didn't know that a lot of this happened here in this country, but uh, I'm gonna go ahead and just let the computer read it for you guys. And um, I'm gonna step out and go to the restroom real quick. I called my computer Aria because she sounds exactly like Aria from uh, Eagle Eye, the movie Eagle Eye. So I'm just going to let her read it and it'll go across your screen there and you guys will be able to hear this on the podcast. So I'm going to step out and go use the restroom real quick and then I'm going to let um, her read this to you guys while I do that. The CIA's Inculture Mind Control Project. Six on the night of July 4, 1954, San Antonio, Texas, was shaken by the rape and murder of a three-year-old girl. The man accused of these crimes was Jimmy Shaver, an airman at the nearby Lackland Air Force Base, with no criminal record. Shaver claimed to have lost his memory of the incident. The victim, three-year-old Cher Joe Horton, had disappeared around midnight outside the Air Force Base where her parents had left her in the parking lot outside a bar. She played with her brother while they had a drink inside. When they noticed her missing, they formed a search party. Within an hour, the group came upon a car parked next to a gravel pit. Cher's underwear was hanging from one of the car's doors. Shaver wandered out of the darkness. He was shirtless, covered in blood and scratches. Making no attempt to escape, he let the search party walk him to the edge of the highway. Bystanders described him as dazed and in a trance-like state. What's going on here? He asked. He didn't seem drunk, but he couldn't say where he was, how he gotten there, or whose blood was all over him. Meanwhile, the search party found Horton's body in the gravel pit. Her neck was broken, her legs had been torn open, and she'd been raped. Deputies arrested Shaver. At 29, he was recently remarried with two children, and no history of violence. He'd been at the same bar Horton had been abducted from, but he'd left with a friend, who told police that neither of them was drunk, though Shaver had seemed high on something. Before deputies could take Shaver to the county jail, a constable from another precinct arrived with orders from military police to, ass to assume custody of him. Around four that morning, an Air Force Marshal questioned Shaver, and two doctors examined him, agreeing he wasn't drunk. One later testified that he probably was not normal, he was very composed outside, which I did not expect him to be under these circumstances. He was released to the county jail and booked for rape and murder. Investigators interrogated Shaver through the morning. When his wife came to visit, he didn't recognize her. He gave his first statement at 10.30 a.m., adamant that another man was responsible. He could summon an image of a stranger with blonde hair and tattoos. After the Air Force Marshal returned to the jailhouse, however, Shaver signed a second statement, taking full responsibility. 
Though he still didn't remember anything, he reasoned, he must have done it. Two months later, in September, Shaver's memories still hadn't returned. The commander of the base hospital, Colonel Robert S. Bray, ordered a psychiatric evaluation to be performed by Dr. Louis Jolien West, the head of psychiatric services at the air base. It fell to West to decide if Shaver had been legally sane at the time of the murder. Shaver spent the next two weeks under West's supervision. They returned to the scene of the crime, trying to jog his memory. Later, West hypnotized Shaver and gave him an injection of sodium pentothal, or truth serum, to see if he could clear his amnesia. While Shaver was under, according to testimony, he recalled the events of that night. He confessed to killing Horton. She brought out repressed memories of his cousin, Beth Rainboat, who'd sexually abused him as a child. Shaver had started drinking at home that night, when he had visions of God, who whispered into his ear to seek out and kill the evil girl Beth. Shaver was under hypnosis, he confessed to killing the young girl. At trial, he maintained his innocence. At, at the trial, West made only a minimal effort to exonerate Shaver. The airman was found guilty. Though an appeals court later ruled that he'd had an unfair trial, he was convicted again in the retrial. In 1958, on his 33rd birthday, he was executed by the electric chair. He maintained his innocence the whole time. The trial, which hinged on Shaver's testimony, might have ended differently had the jury known about West's past. According to newly surfaced papers from West's archives, the psychiatrist had some of the clearest, most nefarious ties of any scientist to the CIA's Project MKUltra. West's files, especially his correspondence with the CIA's longtime poisons expert, Sidney Gottlieb, shed new light on one of the most infamous projects in the agency's history. Likely comprising more than 149 subprojects, and at least 185 researchers working at institutions across America and Canada, MKUltra was, as the New York Times put it, a secret 25-year, 25... $25 million effort by the CIA to learn how to control the human mind. Its experiments violated international laws, not to mention the agency's charter, which forbids domestic activity. At the trial, West maintained that Shaver had suffered a bout of temporary insanity on the night of Cher Joe Horton's killing, but he argued that Shaver was quite sane now. In the courtroom, Shaver didn't look that way. One newspaper account said he sat through the strenuous sessions like a man in a trance, saying nothing, never rising to stretch or smoke, though he was a known chain smoker. Lar large portions of West's truth serum interview with Shaver were read into the court record. The doctor had used leading questions to walk the entranced Shaver through the crime. Tell me about when you took your clothes off, Jimmy, he'd said. Transcript of the interview which survived among West's papers, also showed West trying to prove that Shaver had repressed memories. Jimmy, do you remember when something like this happened before? Or, after you took her clothes off, what did you do? I never did take her clothes off, Shaver said. The interview was divided into thirds, and the middle third hadn't been recorded. When the transcript picked up, it said, Shaver is crying. He has been confronted with all the facts repeatedly. West asked, 
Now you remember it all, don't you Jimmy? Yes, sir, Shaver replied. Though lawyers scrutinized Shaver's medical history, little mention was made of the base hospital, where West's archived letters indicate he had conducted his MKUltra experiments. Shaver had suffered from migraines so debilitating that he'd dunk his head in a bucket of ice water when he felt one coming on. His condition was severe enough that the Air Force had recommended him for a two-year experimental program. The doctor who'd attempted to recruit him was not named in court records or transcripts. On the stand, West said he'd never gotten around to seeing whether Shaver had been treated in the experimental program. Lackland officials told me there was no record of him in their master index of patients. But, curiously, according to the base's archivist, all the records for patients in 1954 had been maintained, with one exception, the file for last names beginning with S.A. through S.T. had vanished. West's professional fascination with LSD was practically as old as the drug itself. For several decades, he was one of an elite cadre of scientists using it in top-secret research. Lysergic acid diethylamide was synthesized in 1938 by chemists at Switzerland's Sendos Industries, but it was not introduced as a pharmaceutical until 1947. In the 50s, when the CIA began to experiment on humans with it, it was a new substance. Albert Hoffman, the Swiss scientist who discovered its hallucinogenic qualities in 1943, described it as a sacred drug that gestured toward the mystical experience of a deeper, comprehensive reality. In the 50s, even before hippies embraced the drug, very few people took LSD, without having somebody being a trip leader, Charles Fisher, a drug researcher, told me. The suggestibility from LSD was akin to that associated with hypnosis, West had studied the two in tandem. You can tell somebody to hurt somebody, but you call it something else, Fisher explained. Hammer the nail into the wood, and the wood, perhaps, is a human being. West seems to have used chemicals liberally in his medical practice, and his tactics left an indelible mark on the psychiatrists who worked with him. One of them, Gilbert Rose, was so baffled by the Shaver case that he went on to write a play about it. In my 50 years in the profession, that was the most dramatic moment ever, when he clapped his hands to his face and remembered killing the girl. Rose said in 2002 of Shaver and the Truth Serum interview. But Rose was shocked when I told him that West had hypnotized Shaver in addition to giving him sodium pentothal. Hypnotism, he said, was not part of the protocol for the interview. He'd also never known how West had found out about the case right away. We were involved from the first day, Rose reco recalled. Jolly phoned me the morning of the murder. He initiated it. West claimed he was in the courtroom the day Shaver was sentenced to death. Around this time, he became vehemently opposed to capital punishment. Did he know his experiments might have led to the execution of an innocent man and the death of a child? If his correspondence with CIA head of MKUltra Gottlieb, predating the crime by just a year, had been presented at trial, would the outcome have been the same? Almost as soon as they had access to it, Government scientists saw LSD as a potential Cold War miracle drug. Full-fledged U.S. research into LSD began soon after the end of World War II, when American intelligence learned that the USSR was developing a program to influence human behavior through drugs and hypnosis.
the United States believed that Soviets could extract information from people without their knowledge, program them to make false confessions, and perhaps persuade them to kill on command. In 1949, the CIA, then in its infancy, launched Project Bluebird, a mind control program that tested drugs on American citizens, most in federal penitentiaries or on military bases, who didn't even know about, let alone consent to, the battery of procedures they underwent. Their abuse found further justification in 1952, when, in Korea, captured American pilots admitted on national radio that they'd sprayed the Korean countryside with illegal biological weapons. It was a confession so beyond the pale that the CIA blamed communists, the POWs must have been brainwashed. The word, a literal translation of the Chinese 11 now, didn't appear in English before 1950. It articulated a set of fears that had coalesced in post-war America, that a new class of chemicals could rewire and automate the human mind. You can tell somebody to hurt somebody, but you call it something else, Fisher explained. Hammer the nail into the wood, and the wood, perhaps, is a human being. When, when the American POWs returned, the army brought in a team of scientists to deprogram them. Among those scientists was West. Born in Brooklyn in 1924, he had enlisted in the Air Force during World War II, eventually rising to the rank of Colonel. His friends called him Jolly, for his middle name, impressive girth, and oversized personality. When he got out, he researched methods of controlling human behavior at Cornell University. He would later claim to have studied 83 prisoners of war, 56 of whom had been forced to make false confessions. He and his colleagues were credited with reintegrating the POWs into Western society, and, maybe more important, getting them to renounce their claims about having used biological weapons. West's success with the POWs gained him entrance into the upper echelons of the intelligence community. Gottlieb, the poisons expert who headed the chemical division of the CIA's technical services staff, along with Richard Helms, the CIA's chief of operations for the Directorate of Plans had convinced the agency's then-director, Alan Dulles, that mind-control ops were the future. Initially, the agency wanted only to prevent further potential brainwashing by the Soviets. But the defensive program became an offensive one. Operation Bluebird morphed into Operation Artichoke, a search for an all-purpose truth serum. In a speech at Princeton University, Dulles warned that communist spies could turn the American mind into a phonograph playing a disc put on its spindle by an outside genius. Just days after those remarks, on April 13, 1953, he officially set Project MKUltra in motion. Little is known about the program. After Watergate, Helms, who by that time was CIA director, ordered Gottlieb to destroy all MKUltra papers. In January 1973, the technical services staff shredded countless documents describing the use of hallucinogens. In, in the mid-1970s, after the Times revealed the existence of MKUltra on its front page, the government launched three separate investigations, all of which were hobbled by the CIA's destruction of its files. Vice President Nelson Rockefeller's Commission on CIA Activities within the United States, 1975. Senator Frank Church's Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, 1975-6, and Senators Edward Kennedy and Daniel Inouye's Joint Senate, 
Select Committee Hearings on Project MKUltra, the CIA's Program of Research in Behavioral Modification, 1977. When records were available, they were redacted, when witnesses were summoned to testify before Congress, they were forgetful. We do know the project's broadest goal was to influence human behavior. Under its umbrella were at least 149 subprojects, many involving research on unwitting participants. Gottlieb, whose aptitude and amorality earned him the nickname the Black Sorcerer, developed gadgetry straight out of schlocky sci-fi. High-potency stink bombs, swizzle sticks laced with drugs, exploding seashells, poison toothpaste. Having persuaded an Indianapolis pharmaceutical company to replicate the Swiss formula for LSD, the CIA had a limitless domestic supply of its favorite new drug. The agency hoped to produce couriers who could embed hidden messages in their brains, to implant false memories and remove true ones in people without their awareness, to convert groups to opposing ideologies, and more. The loftiest objective was the creation of hypnoprogrammed assassins. The most sensitive work was conducted far from Langley, farmed out to scientists at colleges, hospitals, prisons, and military bases all over the United States and Canada. The CIA gave these scientists aliases, funneled money to them, and instructed them on how to conceal their research from prying eyes, including those of their unknowing subjects. Their work encompassed everything from electronic brain stimulation, to sensory deprivation, to induced pain, and psychosis. They sought ways to cause heart attacks, severe twitching, and intense cluster headaches. If drugs didn't do the trick, they'd try to master ESP, ultrasonic vibrations, and radiation poisoning. One project tried to harness the power of magnetic fields. MKUltra was so highly classified, that when John McCone succeeded Dulles as CIA director late in 1961, he was not informed of its existence until 1963. Fewer than half a dozen agency brass were aware of it at any period during its 20-year history. West headed the psychiatry department at UCLA and the school's renowned neuroscience center until his retirement in 1988. One day, among a batch of research papers on hypnosis in West's archives there, I found letters between West and his CIA handler, Sherman Grifford the cover name, according to John Marx's The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, for Sidney Gottlieb. West, who had once written to a magazine editor that he had never worked for the CIA, had in fact worked closely with the agency's black sorcerer himself. The letters picked up midstream, with no prologue or preliminaries. The first was dated June 11, 1953, a mere two months after MKUltra started, when West was chief of the psychiatric service at the air base at Lackland. Who would the guinea pigs be? West listed four groups, basic airmen, volunteers, patients, and others, possibly including prisoners in the local stockade. Addressing Gottlieb as S.G. West outlined the experiments he proposed to perform using a combination of psychotropic drugs and hypnosis. He began with a plan to discover the degree to which information can be extracted from presumably unwilling subjects, through hypnosis alone or in combination with certain drugs, possibly with subsequent amnesia for the interrogation and slash or alteration of the subject's recollection of the information he formerly knew. Another item proposed honing techniques for implanting false information into particular subjects, 
or for inducing in them specific mental disorders. He hoped to create couriers who would carry a long and complex message embedded secretly in their minds, and to study the induction of trans states by drugs. His list lined up perfectly with the goals of MKUltra. Needless to say, West added, the experiments must eventually be put to test in practical trials in the field. To this end, he asked Gottlieb for some sort of carte blanche. Who would the guinea pigs be? He listed four groups, basic airmen, volunteers, patients, and others, possibly including prisoners in the local stockade. Only the volunteers would be paid. The others could be unwilling and, though it wasn't spelled out, unwitting. It would be easier to preserve his secrecy if he were inducing specific mental disorders in people who already exhibited them. Certain patients requiring hypnosis and therapy, or suffering from dissociative disorders, trances, fugues, amnesias, etc., might lend themselves to our experiments. Official investigations into MKUltra yielded little information about its subjects, but West's letter suggests that the program cast a wide net. Gottlieb's reply came on letterhead from Camerphil Associates, a front company he used to correspond with MKUltra subcontractors. My good friend, he wrote, I had been wondering whether your apparent rapid and comprehensive grasp of our problems could possibly be real. You have indeed developed an admirably accurate picture of exactly what we are after. For this I am deeply grateful. Gottlieb saluted his new recruit, we have gained quite an asset in the relationship we are developing with you. West returned the camaraderie, it makes me very happy to realize that you consider me an asset, he replied. Surely there is no more vital undertaking conceivable in these times. In 1954, around the same time as Cher Joe Horton's murder, West began to split his time between Lackland and the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine, where he would lead the psychiatry department. West had told his prospective employer that his Lackland duties were purely clinical and that he'd been doing no research classified or otherwise and he asked the board of directors at Oklahoma for permission to accept money from the Gestictor Fund for medical research, which he called a non-profit private research foundation. In fact, as the CIA later acknowledged, Gestictor was another of Gottlieb's fictions, a shell organization enabling him. In, in 1956, West reported back to the CIA that the experiments he'd begun in 1953 had at last come to fruition. In a 1956 paper titled The Psychophysiological Studies of Hypnosis and Suggestibility, he claimed to have achieved the impossible, he knew how to replace true memories with false ones in human beings without their knowledge. Without detailing specific incidents, he put it in layman's terms, it has been found to be feasible to take the memory of a definite event in the life of an individual and, through hypnotic suggestion, bring about the subsequent conscious recall to the effect that this event never actually took place but that a different, fictional, event actually did occur. He'd done it, he claimed, by administering new drugs effective in speeding the induction of the hypnotic state and in deepening the trance that can be produced in given subjects. At the National Security Archives in DC, I found the version of the psychophysiological studies of hypnosis and suggestibility that the CIA turned over to Senators Kennedy and Inouye in 1977. West's name and affiliation were redacted, as expected. But the CIA's version was also shorter, and watered down in comparison. 
West's document was 14 pages. This one was five, including a cover page. Most glaringly, there was no mention of West's triumphant accomplishment, the replacement of the memory of a definite event in the life of an individual with a fictional event. One passage, not in West's original, claims the CIA never used LSD in studies at all, the effects of LSD and other drugs upon the production, maintenance, and manifestations of disassociated states has never been studied. West, of course, had studied those effects for years. But when it came to elaborate So it goes into more of that if you guys are interested. Um, I misspoke earlier and said that I didn't know that this went on in the world. I didn't know that this went on in this state. I didn't know Oklahoma was a part of it. But aside from that fact, we're way beyond uh, MK Ultra. We're way beyond that. Now they have what they call uh, um, sound to skull technology. So what they claim they can do is they can broadcast a uh, a sound through invisible beam laser perhaps and they can uh, project that into either a crowd or uh, one individual at a time by using this technology it's pretty much along the same lines as um, a direct energy weapon directed at just you know one person and then rumor also has it that that is projected or that that is uh, included in the new 5g technology that they're wanting to roll out but that's allegedly we don't know for sure um so earlier i said it's windy and my, my mind kept focusing on the wind outside so when i went out there earlier uh the wind blew down the entire back fence of the house so uh the fence is gone it's that windy here right now it's it's crazy um so if you guys want to look more at this article uh it's posted in the uh description below and you guys could check that out so this was one I, I wanted to talk about um, because I, I mentioned that some people had pulled off one of the largest um, it's in the thumbnail someone pulled off one of the largest heist in history so whoever these guys were to me it has to be an inside job it, someone just couldn't get away with this unless they knew exactly what they were doing and, and then the way that they went about it, it's crazy but it says Diamond thieves steal jewelry worth up to a billion euros from German museum and possibly world's biggest heist after making off with three, quote, priceless sets commissioned by 18th century royalty. So it was the Green Vault in Dresden was targeted by thieves early Monday morning. As at least, at least two burglars broke in through a window and smashed open a cabinet. They stole jewelry, sets of commission, sets commissioned by 18th century ruler of Saxony. Uh, and the museum had previously boasted that it was, quote, a secure, as secure as Fort Knox. Well, apparently it wasn't because uh, these dudes gotcha. So it says Diamond Thieves stole three, quote, priceless sets of 18th century jewelry from a German museum today in what would be the world's biggest ever heist. Burglars broke into Dresden Green Vault in early hours of this morning, switching off a power supply and breaking in through a window. 
Once inside, they smashed open cabinets and stole three jewelry ensembles, which were commissioned by Saxony's former ruler, Augustus the Strong, in the 18th century show of power. This two thieves were seen on CCTV cameras inside the museum, but they escaped in a gateway car uh, in a manhunt has so far proved fruitless. It says, according to build, uh, up to a billion euros worth of treasures may have been stolen, which would make it uh, the biggest art theft in history. Experts at the museum, which once boasted it was as, as secure as Fort Knox, said the value of the items was immeasurable. And there's here's some pictures of the place. This is crazy, and I don't know if these are the cabinets that they busted into or not but you can see some of the stuff there it's just covered in gold gold everything there's multiple pictures here's crime scene photos it says what are the world's biggest heist it says uh, up to 1 billion uh, euros worth of treasures may have been stolen today's break-in which would make it the largest heist ever it would surpass a series of other famous thefts including theft of the mona lisa in paris the 700 million dollars at today's price uh garden museum boston 500 million dollars Hatton garden london estimate is 200 million uh nazi theft dale block bauer 135 million the Scream Oslo, 120 million. A Diamond Heist in Antwerp, 100 million. Um, it's just crazy. More photos here. Get to the part they where it says how they did all this. It says, uh, you, you know, broken diamonds may be uh, stolen. Diamonds may be broken up and sold. This place looks fairly secure as far as as everything goes on that. So it says the museum also houses uh, the museum also houses include a 20 uh, 25-inch figure of Moore studded with emeralds and 60 648 carat sapphire gifted by Tsar Peter I of Russia at a meeting in 1698. Other, value, other valuable items include a jewel-studded scripture of Indian royal court made out of gold, silver, enamel, precious stones, and pearls. Another is 1701 golden coffee service by court jeweler Jonathan Melkor Dillinger, uh, decorated with uh, lounging cherubs. In 2010, then-museum director Martin Roth boasted in an interview with Di Welt, that the green vault was as secure as Fort Knox. Roth explained how the vault was protected by, quote, invisible security system, but warned the biggest danger was information leaking out from inside. The collection dates back to 1723, while the Dresden Royal Palace, which houses it, was first built in 1533 as the home for the electors and later kings of Saxony. So the green vault gets its name from the green-colored columns and decorate and decoration in some of the rooms as the museum and palace were rebuilt after the devastating Allied bombing of Dresden in World War II 
Some of the items were looted by Soviet troops in 1945, but later returned. Only part of the collection was on display during the Cold War, when Dresden was part of the communist East Germany. However, the museum was ex extensively rebuilt in the 2000s, and two ex uh, exhibitions now form one of the best preserved treasures treasuries in Europe, um, its website says. Angela Merkel hosted then-U.S. President Barack Obama there in 2009 during early months in office. In 2017, a 220-pound gold coin the size of a manhole covered was, uh, cover was stolen from Berlin Museum and was feared to have been melted down. Prosecutors allege that the burglars broke into the museum through an upstairs window and used a ladder, wheelbarrow, and rope to extract the coin. A trial remains underway. If you guys want to check this article out, as always, the link's in the description underneath this video and you guys could check that out it's it's just crazy um that's why i say it has to be a inside job because whoever whoever did this um they had to know what they were doing i mean they had to so been on here what two and a half hours uh this is a sad story it's a shame this had to happen, but I know in, in some, or it didn't have to happen, but it's a shame it happened. I know in some states, uh, they've made it legal for feral hog hunting just because they've overtaken everything. They've destroyed crops. They've destroyed property. Um, so certain states, they've made it legal to where they can kill these things. This article says feral hogs attacked and killed woman on her way to work in Texas. Um, County Sheriff Brian Hawthorne was quoted by saying, in my 35 years, I will tell you it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. So this came out this morning. The reason I'm going so long today is because uh, I skipped yesterday and then caught up on some news today. It says in this article, A woman in Texas was found dead outside the home of an elderly couple she cared for after being attacked by a group of feral hogs on Sunday morning. It says the victim, 59-year-old Christine Rollins, arrived at work in the rural southeast Texan town of Anahawk around 6 a.m. on Sunday when it was still dark. So the 84-year-old homeowner found Rollins' body lying in the front yard when he looked outside after she didn't arrive at their door for work. Police were called and initially considered the possibility that Rollins had died of a medical condition before her body was discovered by the feral hogs. However, an autopsy Monday confirmed the cause of death as loss of blood, quote, due to feral hog assault. Chambers County Sheriff Brian Hawthorne told reporters during a news conference. He said, it looks like she got out of her car and locked it. Um, she was probably trying to make her way to the front door when it appears these animals must have come along. Medical examination found that Rollins was attacked by, quote, multiple hogs based on the various size of, of the bites on her body. As there is no question in the medical examiner's mind that this was feral hogs that caused her death. Um, Hawthorne added, saying, in my 35 years, I will tell you this is one of the worst things I've ever seen. As feral hogs have taken over some of the pasture land around the home, adding that they are a problem throughout Chambers County. Attacks on humans, however, are extremely rare. The feral hogs are one of the most destructive invasive species in the U.S. and have long been a problem for Texas farmers. The hogs cause roughly 
$1.5 billion in damage each year, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, tearing up crops and property, eating endangered species, and spreading disease to livestock and humans. The USDA estimated there are about 6 million hogs across the U.S. and approximately half of them live in Texas. Sad. thought this article was interesting even though you know some people may not like the guy or whatever you know their differences are with him it says Trump donates third quarter salary to help fight the opioid crisis it says uh, President Donald Trump is is donating his third quarter salary to to help tackle the nation's opioid epidemic well, how, White House officials say Trump has given the $100,000 he would be paid in the quarter to the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, which oversees federal public health offices and programs, including the Surgeon General's office. While the White, while the White House says the funds are being earmarked to, quote, continue the ongoing fight against the opioid crisis, Trump was, has made tackling the misuse of opioids an administration priority. More than 70,000 Americans died in 2017 from drug overdoses, and the bulk of them involving opioids. I know people personally uh, who have died from opioid overdoses. I know people who are addicted to opioids. Um, in Oklahoma, they've changed the law here uh, to where they can you can only be prescribed a certain amount of opioids within a month, even within a week. Uh, they very seldomly give them to anybody here. Um, I will... It will probably happen here in Oklahoma that they will turn to prescribing the medical cannabis. They'll probably go that route rather than um, the opioids. It says Trump is required to be paid, but he has pledged to donate his salary while in office to worthy causes. Trump donated his quarter salary to the Surgeon General's office. So even if you don't like him, I mean, it is what it is, you know. At least somebody's doing something about it. I think it's stupid for one, and a lot of people probably don't know this information, but the um, Dow in Canada has started um, taxpayer taxpayer heroin. So what that means is that the taxpayers pay for heroin to give to the addicts. They also have places where they um, Have, they have places where you can go and, and you can use a syringe. Uh, they call them uh, safety injection sites. I think all of that is stupid. To me, that is enabling. Instead of enabling people, you should probably try other routes. Cannabis is an excellent route as far as getting off opioids um, and you know just getting away from or you know getting away from all that stuff. Um, this this whole ideology of you know. Um, giving people a safe place to, to inject and then, you know, having taxpayers pay for other people's abuses. That type of enablement is just, I think, is ridiculous to even think that way. But, but this is uh, this is also pretty sad here because um, not a lot of people pay attention to it. It's not even in the media a lot what's going on with Yemen. Um, you know, people are dying over there all the time, constantly through starvation, disease, war, 
it's it's just it's sad what's going on over there and if it couldn't get even sadder um among what this article says uh, you know amid civil war and famines yemen is facing a new killer the dengue fever it says uh, a civil war in yemen has killed 100,000 people and more have died from starvation and disease including a new outbreak of a mosquito-borne virus the international committee uh, of the red cross is warning of a quote very dire humanitarian situation in yemen and thousands of people in the war-ravaged uh, country are now getting sick from dengue fever, a debilitating disease transmitted by mosquitoes. It says a new outbreak comes on top of an ongoing cholera epidemic that has sickened nearly 60,000 people since January. The United Nations and international aid groups describe the situation in Yemen as particularly, gr particularly grim amid a disastrous civil war. It broke out after Houthi rebels supported by Iran over the capital city. Um, and it says the Saudi-led coalition has since responded with a sustained bombing on the on in-ground campaign. The combat has claimed more than 100,000 lives in almost five years. And the UN says famine and disease have killed another 130,000. As the war has stranded millions of people without clean water or adequate food. Now the European, European Commission says nearly 8,000... Uh, recent cases of dengue fever um, have been reported and more than 3,000 confirmed in Taiz, which is Yemen's third largest city. Ten dengue deaths have uh, been reported there just last week. International Red Cross officials, official Robert uh, Mardini says, quote, We have recently been extremely worried and concerned by reports of dengue outbreak in addition to cholera. With the violence and the fighting, it is a big challenge to control this epidemic. In 2019 alone, more than 3 million people in Yemen were forced from their homes, prompting the International Rescue Committee to list Yemen as the world's greatest risk of humanitarian catastrophe. So pray for the people in Yemen. Horrible about what's going on over there. So I constantly talk about, you know, data breaches, internet breaches, um, this article says it's bad enough that the bad guys are getting more sophisticated with their schemes to steal your personal information. Now it seems that they're to the point where even the apps we download from reputable places like Google Play Store are being used for some of the same bad guys. That's based on a report from CNBC that says security researchers highlighted the flaws to both Facebook and Twitter this week. As in fact, according to Engadget, almost 10 million users may have had their Twitter and Facebook accounts compromised by the presence of two software de development kits, or SDKs, that allowed outside access to your information. In a blog post from Twitter, the company confirmed that user information may have been compromised if you connect your social media accounts to various apps using the SDK. Here's what this means. It says... If you use an Android device and have downloaded apps containing one of the SDKs and, and connected your social media accounts to any of those apps, it's possible that information, um, that your information like your name, username, email, and gender was shared in places you may not have intended. Both of the developers whose SDKs were implicated, One Audience and MobyBurn, have said they have shut down their SDKs while they investigate. Both Twitter and Facebook say they have taken steps to prevent future use of either SDK to gain access to your information. In addition, iOS user, uh, users appear to be unaffected by this popular issue. 
It's not uncommon for apps to ask you to connect your social media account, especially games or other apps that have leaderboard features. However, in the apps included this SDK third party, developers were able to access users' personal information. Twitter went so far to say, uh, to say um, while it doesn't have any evidence that this flaw was actually used to take over any accounts, uh, it could be used uh, in that way. It said the report from CNBC specifically mentioned that the flaws that the flaw was found in a photo editing app giant Square and uh, Photify. But other apps that encourage users to connect their Twitter and Facebook accounts could be affected. In reality, there's very little functionality added to most of the apps by connecting your social media accounts, meaning it's probably best to avoid it unless you have a really good reason to do so. In fact, there's really never a good reason to use your social media account to log in, uh, log into apps on your mobile device. Here it seems like it saves some time creating an account, but it's simply not worth it. This is the latest revelation that comes from both companies who have faced increased scrutiny over the way they handle users' personal information. Facebook, for example, has come under fire for several occasions of lack policies regarding how developers and advertisers are able to access and use information about users of both its namesake Facebook and Instagram apps. So if you guys think that your security has been breached, um, I would definitely check into this. Um, and, uh, you know, do what you got to do to get all that figured out. So I'm going to go ahead and get off here. Um, you know, I've been on here for two and a half hours. So if you listen to the podcast, thank you for listening. Um, I'm monetized on my podcast. You can get it on all streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Deezer, CastBox, Breaker, and a whole lot more. You can check it out there. Um, if you're listening, if you're watching this on YouTube or watch this video later and you don't want to watch the videos, you can listen to it on one of the streaming apps. If you're listening to this on the streaming apps, I do a live show. It's Sunday through Friday at 7 p.m. I take Saturdays off. Um, so I appreciate you guys for listening. If you're listening on the podcast, it was a pretty long one today. Um, and if you're watching, it was long. So uh, if you guys like the video, then, you know, press the like button, subscribe to the channel. I do videos on everything, uh, cons you know, conspiracy theories, uh, wars, riots, fires, breaking news. I do news on pretty much anything and everything that's out there. And, you know, it's called the news that everyone ignores because it's a lot of times it's just articles people aren't interested in or don't think that it affects them in this society. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off here. And until next time, I'll be praying for you guys. And shalom. Not a mother, 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 not a mother